everybody, get ready for Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. A foodie born and bred, my wife Nikki loves chatting up chefs, dining out, and insider industry buzz. And my husband David thinks a great meal is nothing but a good burger, a frosty brew, and a check for under $20. Because he is cheap. Well, maybe so, but foodie married beast anyway. And together we've got the food and wine variety show that has everyone talking. It's Foodie and the Beast, and we are on now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. Good morning. I'm Nikki Nellis with Smoker's Voice. No, you're not. I'm not. Uh, So today's show is going to be really interesting. It's a whole... Focus. It's on, all Ellen and Todd yeah. all the time. Yeah, actually, Ellen and Todd uh, Gray were among the first guests we had on ten years ago. And they, they were. They were on our very and first they've show. been our fans ever since. But listen, <laughs> so according to Exodus sixteen, as the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, they need food, right? So the Lord miraculously provides them with the sustenance they need to keep going. It's manna. So appropriately, bleh, appropriately, that was easy for me to say. Uh, the name of the signature restaurant in D.C.'s new Museum of the Bible is Mana, and the folks behind it, and Milk and Honey, which is a, can I call it a cafe, sort Coffee of? Shop. Coffee okay. shop, cafe. Is uh, the, our Todd and Ellen Gray, and they're here with us. Uh, Todd, as you know, I mean, they're both behind uh, and partners in. Equinox. Uh, Jesus. Well, you... you're taking forever. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm laying it out so that anybody listening will okay. care, so they'll care. It's taking a long time. All right. They're award-winning restaurant, Equinox. Down in uh, the heart of D.C., and uh, they've and taken their on gorgeous book, the new Jewish table. Oh, this is marriage in in microcosm. Yes, their gorgeous book that they wrote with David Hagedorn, right? Yes. Okay, and uh, they're here. They brought in uh, their, their 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 restaurant. Mana is the signature restaurant at the museum. They're mm-hmm. in. They brought in their uh, chef de cuisine, uh, Walter Silva. And uh, their pastry chef? pastry chef, Brandy Edinger, mm-hmm. and Susan Masson, who's an archaeologist, and she's the museum cur- curator of antiquities. And she's a scholar. God, I'm stepping on it. <laughs> Too much to drink last night. But first, <laughs> let's go to Debbie Moser out at Central Farm Markets and find out what's going on there. Hi, Debbie. Uh, hi, good morning. How are you all? How are you, Debbie? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm standing out here. It's our last market of the season, the last winter market. I was going to say, it's not really the last market because it no. really kicks off next week. It really does. We we open all the summer markets at Bethesda Mosaic next weekend, so we're looking forward to that. And as I was going through the market this today, this morning, I was looking at what's good for Passover and Easter because they are both next weekend. I know, I know. So will a lot of people... I think So not. wait, but so will your markets be open next weekend they during will. Easter? Okay, they, great to know. Yeah, so that last-minute shopping or, or your full shopping, if you haven't done it, we're here for you. <laughs> right. if, you're, if you're doing Easter dinner, we're all right. here for you. What about right. um, specialties that people at your market may be carrying? Oh, well, we've got... You know what I saw today that I just love using around this time of year? The mushrooms... Um, the hen of the woods, the shiitakes, or the king trumpet. I, there's a lot of great things you can make for both Easter and Passover um, with fresh vegetables. We have now fresh tomatoes out. We have fresh basil, garlic, baby green garlic. So now, is peppers. that all, when you say tomatoes and basil, are these things all grown hydroponically? Are they grown under hoops? They're, they're grown under hoops. Okay. Yep. And, they, and in greenhouses. And I got to tell you, some of these tomatoes, uh, we've been... We've been eating them the last couple of weeks, and I can't get enough in. I'm just crazy. Because, them. you know, I feel like given – I, I love that you're saying this because I feel like we in the food world have been sort of 
like taught, no, 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 you don't eat tomatoes out of season. Well, they're not seasonal, right. Right, because they're not seasonal. But what's going? But there's this new growing process. It's totally That's different, right. and you're still right, getting right. these really tasty, meaty tomatoes, right? Yeah, you have, they're delicious tomatoes, and the, you know, things like the baby green garlics and the lettuces and the cucumbers. Mm-hmm. Um, we're getting them year-round now. Uh, but the tomatoes are really starting to come into their own, and we've got heirloom and just beautiful tomatoes. Um, so your salads, uh, even a plate of fresh tomatoes, mozzarella, and basil. Right. Well, fresh. I think what's interesting is that what people need to to sort of re-educate themselves on is that it's not – you don't want to eat out of season if it has to travel across the country or across the world. Correct. But when it's local, you're really doing good not just for your nutritional sake but also for local farmers as well. Right. And, you're, and, and in our region, the farmers are – you know, we have so many of them, and they really come out and they're they're bringing the best. So – um, we were very happy all winter, the, all of our patrons that supported them, and, and we're going to continue on next week as we open the big markets. Well, that'll be fun. All right, Debbie, let's tell everybody where the markets are. Okay. Uh, the, the two markets that are running right now are Bethesda in downtown Bethesda at Bethesda Elementary and Mosaic in the Mosaic District. And at the end of April, we'll be talking about Pike and Rose that opens, and then we'll be talking about our new market at Westfield in May that opens. Very exciting. All right, everybody go to Central Farm Markets and get fresh stuff. And have a happy Passover and happy Easter. You too. All right, Deb. Bye. Shout out to Ellen and Todd. Shout out to Ellen and Todd. Okay, they're here. They <laughs> got right. shouted out. So, <laughs> yeah. Ellen and Todd. Bye-bye. You wanna, we are now on Facebook Live, so if you want to reintroduce a little oh, bit that's of what right. we're doing here today. Well, we're, we've got Ellen and Todd Gray in the studio. You know them from Equinox. You know Todd from winning Rammy's Chef of the Year and all that stuff. And everybody but, knows Ellen. And everybody knows <laughs> Ellen. And if, if you don't, she's going to make sure you do. But we're now on Facebook Live. We're talking about their signature restaurant, Mana, at the Museum of the Bible. And uh, we're on Facebook Live at Nikki Nellis, N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S. Thanks to Tessa Nellis, who is in from Hollywood, to put us up on stage and screen. All right, so Todd and Ellen, let's start with a little bit of a 411 on you guys, because you didn't just suddenly... You know, like Drop show up like on Star, on Star Trek. We just, you weren't like here. manna coming we, out we of the heavens. Right. You're manna and woman. And here you are. So, so beam a little, me up, Exodus. 16.5. Uh, I would like to beam up right now. Can we take a break? Um, why don't we start with you and how you guys got together and your background? Well, Ellen and I uh, opened Equinox in 1999. We met actually when I was at Galileo back in the mid-90s. And um, food broker. I heard she spotted you and said... I gotta him. have him. Yeah, he's, he's my man. I that. just wanted his business. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But uh, and, and that, she means that in more ways than one. Know, right. Huh? But uh, and then uh, that led to opening Equinox uh, almost well 19 years in May and. Uh, this new project that we're doing at the Museum of the Bible. Just I have to interrupt. Awesome. I remember sitting down with you guys when we were talking about the 10-year anniversary. Know. Know. What do we do for Wait a second. Oh, my God. 20 years? <laughs> That's amazing. Years. Wait, you're not 26 anymore? No, I'm not 26 <laughs> anymore. Time's That's it for me. <laughs> Next. Um, so you created Equinox, but you really had a focus on Equinox to be mid-Atlantic. Yeah. specific to the region. But then as you grew and and you started, you know, traveling and doing more things and you had a child, you uh sort of the child who's going to college. Right. Year, but yeah. you but you Equinox has always remained true to its roots, but but you grew as a chef and you sort of explored 
other regions and Strange other cuisines. Right. Absolutely. But I think you have to. I, I think as a chef, you, you, you have to evolve. And I think that's a key word is you always are evolving and, and you're – you don't want to get pigeonholed into just doing one style for decade after decade. And I think that's what I was um, breaking into. And I found this, you know, when we started exploring more Mediterranean cooking with the book, actually, when we did the development of the book and we started to explore all the the influences of, of uh, our Eastern Russian background and our, you know, melding of these two styles, sort of mid-Atlantic meets. Well, I just want to say the book is The New Jewish Table, and it has been out now for four years Yes. Four years? Am I right? Four, Four years. Yeah, five, 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 five years? It's timeless, though. It's kind of, <laughs> is it a chicken and egg thing? I mean, were you interested in all this? And then and then as it he grew, you said, we've got enough for a cookbook? Or were you say, let's do a cookbook where nobody's done one? Or well, I think what, more importantly, I think it's, I was more interested in the historical value and the historical knowledge of really food. And I've always been a historical lover of food. And that's how the, the being based in the Mid-Atlantic Sort of really doing our, you know, our our research on the Algonquian Indians and really what was going on in the Chesapeake Bay and what was what what were we eating in this region and really what was the style of cooking that was happening and what are we doing now in this region, and so understanding sort of the history of the food sort of led us but, to. But the well, real wait. the real roots of the book were a nice Jewish girl with New York Russian. You're not roots. that nice. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. <laughs> And Todd, being from Fredericksburg, growing up on Wonder from, Bread and from... ham cheese sandwiches, <laughs> and meeting my family and trying to understand what gefilte fish is. We know you put mayo on your Wonder Bread. We're not judging. <laughs> we're just saying. If That's I had all. it in front of me, you would love it. I'm so you. did you go home after that first night and go, these Jews is crazy? <laughs> 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 Can we digress for one minute? What do you think happened with the Algonquian Indians where somebody opened up an oyster and said, well, that looks good. And the first one to try it. Right. Yeah. It was like, it's like drinking mucus. I mean, but it's delicious. Tasty. A little crunchy, but yeah. tasty. Well, yeah. Yeah, you don't eat the shell. Right? appetizing food show starting. All right. So, so, so time. But, no, but so you were, you know, taken in by, you the know. Tribe. The, the tribe. The tribe. And, they um. Them. You know, and I think anybody who, listen, whether you marry somebody within your religion or you marry somebody without your religion or race or culture or whatever it is, you know, you have um, other families' traditions that you either incorporate or do not incorporate within your new family. So you had Ellen's family's traditions, their foods and what they did. And, you know, listen, my grandmother's brisket is dry as a bone, man. I mean, <laughs> she cooks that it's thing. It's like eating a sneaker. It's like she cooks, you know, everything is dry. Everything. But, you know, as we evolved, while we still take her traditions and put them on our tables, we just made them better. <laughs> I just we want to sh- say there might be something to it because she's 96. <laughs> right. Also, some are worth keeping, like the matzo ball soup, which is the recipe of my great aunt Lil. Mm-hmm. And Todd just really added a few tweaks to it. And he it pretty it much up. stands as it is. I mean, they were the ultimate in cooking with the region and the season because that's all they had. Right. <laughs> Borscht and Russia is a thing, you know. Right. There's a, there's a reason that <laughs> they ate right. it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, then he put his culinary uh, know-how on top of very traditional Jewish cultural foods, and then my family accepted him. <laughs> right. I'm sure they accepted you before then. <laughs> but as you were getting into these recipes, um, instead of just taking it from a cultural or family background, were you... As you were doing the research on it, did it just open up this whole historical world to you that you were unaware Absolutely. of? Absolutely. 
Well, sure. I mean, who? At least I would think I speak for a lot of chefs. But I mean, who doesn't want to learn more about food every day? We learn if you're not learning something new every day, you feel like you I mean you're getting flat. And so, learning about new new cuisines is exciting, and you integrate them and you sort of blend them into your own style. Well, interesting because it's really old cuisine that's new to you. Absolutely, because it goes right. back thousands of years. But I think what's really interesting, and we're really going to get into this as we talk about your trip to Israel and sort of your dive into the culinary history there, is how you take this way of people eating and bring it into this century, because. Yeah. You know, and, and we're going to talk to, you know, Susan. Susan later about what people were eating in, you know, the first century and how different it was. And you'll try some, too. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you know what? We're going to take the break now, and then when we come back, we'll get into that. This is David and Nikki Nellis with Foodie and the Beast. We are talking about uh, culinary eating throughout history with Todd and Ellen Gray and their restaurant. I'm going to say Mana, but is it Mana or Mana? Manna? Yeah, if you got culture. You manna, manna from the heavens. Okay. We'll be back in just a sec. All right, we're back on Fooding the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. Nikki and I have repaired our relationship, and we're ready to continue talking to Todd That's and Ellen. Only because I left the room. Oh, God. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Yahweh. Thank you, everybody, for letting her leave the room. All right, so you guys took a, a – well, you've taken several trips to Israel, but there was this moment when you had an epiphany. What happened there? With the food. Wow. I, you know, it was a changing, changed me as a chef because to go back and see the biblical influence and to go into Israel the and to see the recipe I did in the, in Jerusalem in the old city was cooking with a, with a Christian Muslim living uh, in the Muslim quarter and we're doing a dish, 4,000 year old recipe with baby lamb and dried goat's milk powder and braising it and going through the whole process. And I don't know, when you do that and you're in the old city of Jerusalem, I think you feel the history and you just, it, it moves you. Okay, but how did you wind up there? I mean, how did you wind up with this person and wind up cooking with them? I mean, that doesn't happen the, to everybody. Well, the museum um, uh-huh. set the tour up. The museum set the tour up okay. for us. So we had the help of, um, obviously, the, the museum as well as the Israeli government. Um, Putting you in touch with the right people. They set up a tour, a, okay. a very exact tour of um, some of the most amazing places. And well, I mean, Ellen, you things. lived in Israel, right? I did. You yeah. lived in Israel. You lived yeah. on a kibbutz. So, I mean, for you to take this kind of tour and see the things that you hadn't seen before, like what the country was it? changed so much, right? But I, what mean, was it when you were there? From you know, just an outsider's perspective, looking in, and especially being there from the culinary perspective, like what, like you told me a story about making hummus that I was, I, I mean, I was like, I want to go so bad just to do that. It's yeah. Well, the hummus on the second, the, this last trip, we made hummus in Akka. Um, it was, it, you think you've had hummus every way till Sunday and you've tried them all and there can't be one that could trump the other. But this one was hands down by far it, it blew us all away and our son was with us too who's actually the worst food critic of, of us all and he loved it but he sounds I, generally like a pain in the ass <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he's an 18 year old boy right. that's not and true when I when I lived in Israel the first time it was in 1987 it was during the first intifada I was living in a kibbutz on the Golan Heights I was on the border of Syria and I was working on a avocado um, part of the kibbutz was avocado uh, farming, and I was actually working with the animals. So you were eating avocado toast before everybody else I was, was. eating avocado <laughs> toast and starting in 1987, and it really was, it was a lot of the South Africans came over and, and taught us about avocado toast. But um, And then I actually moved down to work on a scuba diving boat in the Red Sea, 
and I was cooking fritters, which are now risotto fritters on the menu, right? <laughs> <laughs> on, a, on a boat, and we would sail into Sharma Shack and up the Sinai. So you could see, I could see back then in the 80s um, where Israel was going with their farming technique and having to, you know, basically farm in a desert and the technology that they were starting to really put into the country and their culinary scene was, you know, very farm-oriented back then. Um, and then what it is today, flash forward, is incredible. It's it's one of the best culinary well, tours I've ever taken. something up for me, because when I was there in 1971, I was there way back right, when. Right around statehood. And when we would stop, no, not, not around no. statehood. Well, okay. Good Lord. That was, fi- <clears throat> that was 70 years ago. Okay, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Damn, I'm not sorry. that old. But anyways. <laughs> well, um, actually, he is that old because he was born when statehood. Right. When they got statehood. <laughs> Uh, Golden Mike, I dated Golden Mike. I <laughs> thought you said you were there in 1951. She was hot, particularly with her, you know. Anyway, but, her but I remember they used to have no her gun, not her. Oh, but okay. anyway, her, her, uh, you're killing me. There were roadside stands, and you would get tahini and all of that, but. There was a ton of steak. Like, where was the steak coming from then? Because there were not all the farms it was a I goat, saw. Goat, David. No, it wasn't goat. It, it was might steak. have been goat. It was probably goat. They told steak. Americans it was steak. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that it? No, my cousin, my cousin was serious. No, but, I mean, where did all the meat come from? Because there was steak, and were they importing it? Or because lamb? It would be either be lamb or goat, they, right? Well, they were starting to really farm. You know, as soon as they. Because everything I saw was watermelons or avocados. It was or, maybe know, from a, a kibbutz, the farming. I mean, that was predominantly what a lot of Israel was, was kibbutz right after statehood in the 40s. Well, that's um, our kibbutz was started Susan, by... Come up to the mic. Go ahead, go ahead, Alan. Finish yeah, up. Survivors You're... from Germany. Right. And, um, you know, I met them. I was lucky enough to meet them. And they were just starting farming everything from cattle to avocados. So... But... Well, Susan, I want to bring you up. You um, Let's reintroduce Susan. Susan, Susan is Mastin. Susan Mastin, who is the museum's curator of antiquities. She's an archaeologist. And a scholar. And a scholar. <laughs> I just like saying that because that's something and, I'm never going and to be. And, wait a minute. And she's smart. So, <laughs> <laughs> so as an archaeologist, mm-hmm. and you uh, work at the museum, and you helped put together the table. Explain the table. Yeah, so one of our exhibits in the museum is called The World of Jesus of Nazareth, and it's a reconstruction of a first-century Jewish Jewish village. So one of the things you can see in the village is a typical house of that time. So if you go in the house, we have a table all set out with food they would have typically eaten at the time. Um, We also have a cooking courtyard, so you can go and see what their oven would have looked like, very different from ours, um, and just some of the food they had. What is the research for that? Like, how do you... How do we know? Do it know? was so long ago. It's not like we have photos mm-hmm. or videos. I was or- a waiter at the Last Supper, but I forgot everything <laughs> I served. So. so there's a few different ways. Um, obviously, the Bible talks about food, but it doesn't really talk specifically about how they made food. Like, There's no recipes in the Bible for the most part. Um, we do have some recipes that have survived from the Romans um, from that time period. Um, and then also through excavation. So if you go up two floors in the museum, we have an exhibit from the Israel Antiquity Authority, so the main archaeological body in Israel. Um, and they actually have an oven. It's called a taboon that they excavated from a site, and they've brought that. They also have um, cooking pots and grinding stones, and they actually have um, Organic material, so date pits, olive pits, a garlic clove, all that date to the first century. So that kind of thing is very rare. Um, and they, it's so amazing. Yeah. So as you were setting this table, what 
in the first century, mm-hmm. what what was gracing the tables? What were people eating? So there obviously were different economic classes at the time. So your no average, different than today. Yes. <laughs> so your average villager living in Israel would have had a very simple diet, um, mostly bread made up probably 50% of their diet um, and basic things they could grow, um, olives, um, goat milk and cheese you can make from goat milk and things like that. The more elite, um, the Roman elite would have ate a much, much richer, fancier diet. The Romans, especially at that time, um, had a very exotic and luxurious diet. So today... Because they were bringing things in from other mm-hmm. regions because it wasn't just from that region. No, yeah. So today we think it's really cool for everything to be locally sourced mm-hmm. and that's very important to us. The Romans had the opposite attitude. The more exotic and far away it was, the better because mm-hmm. that was one of the advantages of living in the Roman Empire was you had access to, you know, if you lived in Italy, you could get things from North Africa, from Asia, from all over the world. So, um, But was the integration of, I mean... Did that trickle down? So like spices and things of that nature, if the elite had it, mm-hmm. did it initially trickle down because the people who worked on it took some with them and brought it home? I mean, did some of those things integrate into different uh, socioeconomic levels? Yeah, it would have a little. Um, again, the average your average Joe villager, um, for most of the time, they ate kind of the same thing. But on special occasions during feasts and festivals, weddings, um, you have stories of weddings in the New Testament, um, they would have had more a fancier um, spread then. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, is there is there any information, I mean, have you guys figured out when kosher started being a thing? Because kosher, we were talking before the show, mm-hmm. keeping kosher set the Jews apart and mm-hmm. probably made them for everybody else. Like, oh, those weird Jews, they won't eat. You know, when did pigs start becoming part of the diet. Well, the Muslims don't eat pigs either. Right, yeah. but I mean, my point is, when did that start happening in Palestine? So not eating pig goes back basically to the beginning. Um, one of the ways they differentiate Israelite sites from, say, the Philistine sites is the presence of pig bones. So, oh, those Philistines. Yeah, those Philistines. <laughs> they they, 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 they deserve pig. the bad rap they get. <laughs> don't they, Todd? No Philistines. Yeah, but at an Israelite site... Um, If you're up in the hill country or something, you'll find very few pig bones. And that's one of the ways they identify the sites. But there's there's, – was was it because pigs would – you know, you could get trichinosis? I mean, they were dirty animals. Is that why? I mean, they had no concept of germs and that kind of thing back then. Right. It's not like they could – No, but they could associate if you eat pig, you're going to get sick versus – no, we don't know. We don't know. Um, I wish I remembered more from the last (laughs) – Too busy getting autographs. Well, so Ellen and Todd, as you guys were crafting your menu, were you, I mean, you went on this trip to Israel and you got to have all these experiences and were you trying to take things from old to make it new? Like what, what were you looking to do with the restaurant initially? And I think we should explain to people first what the restaurant is like, because it's the only, you have the cafe, Milk and Honey, which is fabulous, but like you have a restaurant at the top of the museum, it's a beautiful space, but you are feeding almost everybody who walks into the museum, which is insane, um, given how many visitors are coming in every day. No, I mean, I've been there when it's, it's in action. It's right. insane. So can we talk about your concept, what manna is supposed to be? Well, and I think I'll, I'll share this Take time. Um, well, I, I think when we went over to Israel, we were, we were going on this last trip for um, authenticity, Mm-hmm. To understand um, also what modern 
Israeli cuisine is, as well as, you know, super old things that Susan's referencing. Why do you look at me when you and, say that? <laughs> and I think that, um, like most restaurants, you, you start in one place and you evolve because you can't just open saying, okay, this is it, this is everything. And with the help of our culinary team, who are here and you'll hear from later, mm-hmm. we're continuing to evolve the taste and the flavor there. So the menu is not, this is it, this is, this is what we've opened with. Right. But through more research, hopefully a trip that we'll all take back over there. When um, you say you all. We'll continue. You looked over there. Why yeah. don't you well, look over our, here? Because our culinary <coughs> team is here with us today. And he's over there too, you know. Right. <laughs> and he's like, I'll go on a trip. He is an honorary Jew. <laughs> you know, right it's, it's all about the team. And, you know, <clears throat> with so with the help of this team, we're continuing to evolve that menu. But we, we started in one place and we're, we're going to keep going and going deeper and more authentic and perhaps creating some new things with uh, our own ingredients here. And, yeah, we're not stopping. We're just getting started. We're only four right. months old. <laughs> we should go with you and do and, and, and record shows from there. Yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. Let's that would do be, it. We're, okay. we're already talking about And I'm changing my last name to Gray. <laughs> yeah, okay. Just, all right, you know, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I mean, you have all these dishes in studio. We want to talk I've about them. I know, David's These are delicious. Already in. I mean, that's no <laughs> joke to anybody who <laughs> listens to the show regularly. Um, but uh, we're going to talk about the dishes, how they are formed formulated and sort of some of the history of some of them. And Todd, I want to talk more about your experiences in Israel and how you took those experiences and put them on the plate. This is David and Nikki Nellis with Foodie and the Beast. We're going to Israel. We'll be back in just we'll be back in just a sec. All right, we're back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. So before we get back to the show, I just want to thank our sponsors, ProFish, uh, the mm-hmm. market at River Falls is a fabulous specialty market in Potomac. And if you're planning your Easter feast or your Passover feast and you need Catering, they do it, man. Mm-hmm. They do it. Sometimes a little supplement is all you need. Yeah. Well, since you do the table, I mean, seriously, I know you know how much help is necessary. <laughs> uh, you know, you don't make the seder. I make the seder. Uh, are there any marriage counselors listening? <laughs> Please call in. All right. So let's get back to you guys. Um, uh, Todd and Ellen Gray. Yes, Todd. Well, I hope that people have been listening. Todd and Ellen Gray, mm-hmm. who. Uh, Opened up a fabulous, the signature restaurant at the Museum of the Bible called mm-hmm. Mana, and they brought in um, great oh, yeah. foods and great help and great folks. We just heard from Susan Mastin. You want to introduce your uh, your support a- team absolutely, here? Absolutely, absolutely. So we have Walter Silva, our Walter chef. And Brandy, come yeah, to Walter the mic and Brandy, over there, Walter please. Silva, our chef de cuisine from the museum, and really helps run the all of the food service with us. And Brandy Ettinger, our Executive pastry chef who just is doing brilliant things. I think you'll get a chance to taste them and speak for you. Right. Yeah. Well, so Brandy and Walter, I'd love to hear how you worked with Todd uh, to come up with the items that you wanted to put on the menu for Mana. Mana, Mana. 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 Mana makes you sound cultured, but it's mana. Mana, mana from the head. Oh, my mana. aunt says. Mana. Okay, so um, you know, were there things both from your own backgrounds that you were like, yes, I understand this, and I, I believe that this is a part of the historical uh, importance of what we're doing. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, I think um, where I come from, I'm originally from Peru, so it's like the other side of the world. It's not That's really next door to Israel, right? You know, <laughs> you know, but uh, but I do understand uh, cooking. You know, like out of uh, Necessity and you know with uh, sustainable ingredients and what's available, and um, you know and just make it happen. So uh, you know like working with fresh ingredients and all this is you know, like something I'm familiar with, but at the same time you know like under you know like hard conditions because you know busy places you know like uh, trying to uh, put out the best food we can and then uh, under uh, Chef Todd's uh, direction you know we try to uh, kind of like channel all these you know like flavors and 
ideas in order to make it uh, approachable. Mm -hmm. So in this case, uh, what we put together, you know, is actually something I was trying to recreate, almost like the flavors that you will find in that time. You know, they would talk about, uh, you know, like, for example, like this chicken galantine that it was like cooked in a, they didn't have uh, access to salt, something that for anybody would be super easy to get. In this case, uh, they use a, uh, like fermented fish sauce, you know, it's kind of weird, but you know, like. So wait you, a second, they uh, used in so. Uh, for this dish, uh, that chicken galantine that. Uh, so there was today. no salt. I mean, you know, it was like hard to access to, like you know, like uh, stuff like, for example, like well, from what I read, and uh, mm -hmm. it was hard to, <laughs> it was Susan hard to access, you know, like yeah, the, you know, was there no yeah, because salt? the Romans were always he sending, was there, he you know, would know. The Romans, <laughs> the Romans. But, uh, why did you look at me again? The Romans were always sending people you know, to the salt mines in yeah, the movies. For, so. for example. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's like, for example, another, you know, it's not like you can just have it on your like dispensary, you know, like you, you get access to like uh, salty cheeses or uh, like fish sauces or you need mm -hmm. to like ferment things. So that's how they develop flavors. You know, it wasn't as, as and, and Chef Brandy will tell you, like when she tries to work and uh, they don't have sugar, for example, you know, and um, but then when it comes to savory, you know, um, they didn't have some, so many ingredients. So they will replace it with another uh, stuff. So they'll make it uh, stronger or kind of like, you know, uh, kind of like brighten up some more flavors. In this case, uh, we did a, a Roman pesto. There is the original pesto, not like the creamy pesto that you'll find anywhere else. With cheese. Here is more like a rustic, uh, you know, rustic, almost like, you know, like roughly chopped uh, mint and some basil and parsley. You know, put a little bit of uh, uh, pecorino romano, you know, like chunks mm -hmm. in there. Some, uh, you know, like, but then, you know, like we make it nice. So uh, we put a little bit of a chive oil, but obviously they, nobody would bother in that time to make any. You know, Walter, I think we should oil. taste that. Yes, my husband is like, why is that over there and not over Come here? Come on, Taddy, send yeah. it over. Okay. Um, well, so Brandy, come up to the yeah, mic. So I, Walter really brought up some Beautiful. really Look interesting facts. I mean, we're so used to things being at the ready for us. You know, salt, I mean, salt to plenty. There's 18,000 kinds of sure. salt, gray salt, black salt. I mean, you know. We just think that salt was always ready or sugar, which right. also we all have are so accustomed to just having access to. So as you were coming up with your recipes, I mean, you brought in some beautiful things today. Did you say, OK, I can't use sugar or how did you decide to go? How did you go about making things authentic, but still being able to go to the palates of today? Um, Actually, through reading the book and just doing some research on this. Wait, OK, which book are we talking about? Are we uh, talking around about the Roman table. Around the Roman table. Yeah, um, I actually did learn that. That it's Susan's book. <laughs> <laughs> that um, but butter and sugar was something that they they really did not frequently have. Honey was something that, that they used all the time, which is why both of these desserts here have either a honey glaze or honey as a sweetener. Um, but yeah, I, I actually read as far as the salt goes that you know yes they didn't have it around a lot like we do now, but they said when they wrote the recipes back then that. They 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 just assumed that people knew to, put, to put salt, salt in. so they left right. it out of the recipe. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I learned a lot reading. Yeah, reading these books, truthfully. Um, so, how did you decide to like? Let's talk about some of the things you brought in today, sure. and and what's on the menu. Let's talk about the bumbaloni. The bumbaloni. Um, this is a lemon ricotta fried dough. Um, the name actually, as far as ancient Roman times, is globi, which means globe or sphere. Mm -hmm. um, traditionally, these were made with wheat flour, ricotta, um, egg, and just honey honey glazed. Mm -hmm. uh, I put uh, did half and half like wheat and all purpose just because I didn't want it to be so dense. Um, and they're soaked in a orange blossom honey. I had a little bit of orange blossom just because otherwise there's not a lot of flavor and there's yeah, a little really? bit of orange zest. Good. Or Sorry. Lemon zest. Mm, mm, mm. Good. I'm so glad what you're enjoying that. Oil? I mean, was oil. <laughs> they used lard. Fried? They used lard. They used lard. Okay, so yes. animal fat. So exactly. they used everything. Yep. 
Exactly. Okay. Um, the tort, this is actually a pepper and nut tort. So mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a little bit of fresh cracked black pepper in there. Mm-hmm. It's gluten-free. It is very dense, obviously, because they did not have leaveners back then. Um, so no baking powder or anything like that. It just relied. So matzo was flat because matzo was flat. No, but wait a minute. No, they so had to I run. Thought, <coughs> I thought when they, when, when they were, when, you know, when my people were let go, that part of the reason they had matzo <laughs> well, was they because had, it didn't sit around yeah, to leaven the bread. Yeah, but there's leaveners and then there's yeast. Right. So exactly. you don't put yeast in a cake. No, baking right. powder, baking soda. Baking powder, baking right. soda, right. Correct. So this has neither. This is literally just egg, um, pine nuts. Pine nuts and hazelnuts, obviously a very big Roman Italian staple. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is also drizzled with honey as well to add a little bit of sweetener because otherwise there's no sweetener whatsoever. So it is a very dense cake. But, you know, even in Italy today, everything is – they do all these nut torts and they're they're very dense. And, and that's why um, – it's so, well, That's actually, it. Susan, do you mind coming up to the mic for a second? Because mm-hmm. the, the the talking about salt and sugar, sort of things that, you know, I just think people of today think everybody had access to mm-hmm. all the time. I mean, we're just sort of flush and that kind of stuff. What did people use? Uh, or was flavor not important and it was just about nourishment and sustenance? So for the Romans, flavor was important. Um, right. The... Didn't they have vomitariums? Was, huh. Is that real? Vomitorium. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Dionysus, very uh, elaborate uh, feasts and things they would have mm-hmm. around that cult. Um, awesome. But yeah. So, so, the, that's, like, where that's, was I? That's the ancient. No, that's. Sounds like now bulimia. we call it party to <laughs> your puke. <laughs> it's an eating disorder. <laughs> yeah. But so the Romans had a very different palate from us. Um, they used a lot of spices, um, mm-hmm. probably more than what. From the West Indies, like from like Asia, where were they getting all of these? Asia, Africa, okay, um, probably, well, maybe Europe, but yeah, so very um, a lot of spices. But I mean, you mentioned um, from Peru, so you have to think about the Romans were pre-Columbian, so they didn't have. You were talking about avocados earlier. That's a new world. Was it a fruit, fruit. or vegetable? Yes. I don't know. Fruit. Um, <laughs> so they didn't have that back then. They also, they didn't have tomatoes. They didn't have corn. They didn't have potatoes. They didn't have vanilla and chocolate. Um, so these are all things that we're so used to today that you, they had they no have, idea about. Um, right. But they had dates. Mm-hmm, dates. Olives. You mentioned honey. Olive was one of the major, it still is today, one of the major um, products of the Mediterranean. So would a would a Roman have? I mean, had a version of what Walter prepared here? Yes. Okay. And did they? I mean, I don't know. Did they have chickens? Oh yeah. They had chickens. All oh right. yeah. Turkeys no, but because this yes. the flavor the of this first. without without all the modern stuff is. And first of all, the chicken is unbelievably that, tender. And that was authentic to this recipe. Yeah, it's delicious. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is. And the and the pesto, the way you handled the pesto. Nice. So mm-hmm. this a, a Roman general. Whatever would have a Roman governor would have had a meal similar to this. Walter's not done yet. He's got something else up his sleeve here. What's Walter, that? what's the other dish you That's brought? That's where in? you make it up your sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> this is so gorgeous. Look what at this. Is? Dish. It's Another one of my tricks. Um, well, I mean, this is a, a cheese salad. Um, basically, we took some uh, halloumi that we're currently using at Mana. Um, and I work grilled cheese at the coffee shop coming every day. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, basically, uh, <laughs> we, uh, the only thing that I changed about the original recipe, like I charred the cheese to develop some of the nuttiness on, on the, you know, on the halloumi. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for the people that know, it's like uh, goat cheese and sheep's milk, you know, uh, that again, you know, it's like another like salty cheese that, you know, like you don't it's really delicious. need to uh, like you don't need too to much that, to it, you right. know. 
So uh, this has like a little bit of vinegar, some uh, uh, preserved uh, celery, and fresh, you know, like parsley leaves, celery, le uh, celery leaves, and some, yes, a uh, little bit of, uh, like, you know, crushed pepper well, so, on top. Okay. Mm -hmm. But for people to understand the restaurant, mm -hmm. it's sort of a fast, casual restaurant. Mm -hmm. So is this salad on the menu? Well, you know, this is a great thing about the, the collaboration we have at the museum with, like, Walter and Brandy and all of us at um, – we always take could the, be on the menu tomorrow. Yeah, I mean we we're always <laughs> looking for new flavors and new things. And as we develop sort of these, again a great a great sort of historical dish. How do you make it, and how do you keep it consistent it to serve five hundred portions a day? And that's the trick. And that's what I was saying to Danielle before was keeping things in kind of volume. But this can certainly probably make it on. We were talking about spring dishes. It's got great greens. But we herbs. also started doing specials recently to sort of test these kinds of mm -hmm. dishes because the menu is pretty set. Um, it's kind of hard to change that menu you know so quickly but they're much it's much easier for them to put up a special every day sure so they've been doing a lot of different research and and we, we call it on, on the menu like brandy seasonal dessert <laughs> then we're not committed to any one thing and brandy gets to try out a lot of different things but and so you but, literally ring it in as brandy okay, seasonal for dessert people, same with walter that really he addressed. does a special so every people day people who haven't been in what is on the menu? Like when somebody comes in, because you're not just catering to people who are interested in a historical meal necessarily, or somebody well, people are who, kind of surprised, actually. right? Or people who you know are just coming in for a Todd Gray meal. You're catering to people. You're catering well, to tourists. Well, and we we did we did realize um, early on that there's definitely people who are down for trying, um, you know, halloumi or tahini for the first time. Then there's also we learned that there's definitely people who would like a fried chicken French fry thing. So we added that to the menu. We didn't exactly open with the basket, but you know we do listen to the customers like coming kids, through. Like yeah, and like and a lot of and like, you, know. Pe you know people tell you what they think, and and we as hospitality driven minded people. So we did add that to the menu. No, you're not going to find that in so biblical a, times, but a, it makes Moses people very burner. happy. So, well, but too, it's true. But, but, but at the you, same time, you'll find falafel. You know, and you're going to do chicken strips and 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 little crispy potatoes, integrating zatar and and doing brining with yogurt and Israeli spices, so that when you do taste it, it's not just what you might. Okay, anticipate. for people who don't know what zatar is, can you explain that? Because I've had your mixture and it's delicious. Zatar actually is uh, traditionally made with hisop, which is a style, which is a, um, a strand of oregano, mm -hmm. and it is a blend of uh, oregano, hisop, sesame, and sumac. Okay, um, and it's just ground together, it's kind of a ground together, blend. exactly. And it's literally, like sprinkled so on. So when it hits something hot, it's very aromatic. You get the toasty nuttiness, you get this little fruitiness from the sumac, and you get that real deep herbaceousness from it. And, and that's one of those things that when we went to Israel, like, you know, first time we saw it, we, we used it sort of daintily because we didn't really get it. And then we went to Israel, and, and they just, they throw just it fistfuls, yeah. like, oh, it's like, oh, that's how you use it. And mm -hmm. it just changes everything. So you have to use the right amount of a zatar it's for like sure. the old bay in Maryland. Yes. Exactly. But that's, I think, is some of the, the key flavor profiles in this type of food is the, the spices and understanding how smoking cinnamon and how you really are curing lemons. Well, we've done preserved lemons forever, but curing them with Aleppo pepper and lemon juice and olive oil for a short period of time so it's still very acidic and you integrate that into the dish and you sometimes you eat it and you go, what is that flavor? Right. But this when we went there, we got to work with all the chefs and they were showing me all these different techniques for really making the food well, explode. Well, wait, is, we have to take a break. Well, I just want to sure say, you, you really can't 
Oh, my God. <laughs> Don't condescend to me on the air. Wait till we're off the air. Uh, no, but, I mean, you really can't get this kind of meal anywhere else in Washington. you got to go to Mana to, to get these tastes. Thankfully, but when we come back, I want to talk to you about everybody here in studio about when people come and eat here, whether it's at Milk and Honey or at Mana, um, getting that understanding what you're eating because you have to educate people as they're sitting down. And now, not everybody <laughs> wants to get an education when they sit down. They shouldn't. But they're case. also at a museum, so right. you know they're yeah. curious to begin right. with. All right. This is David and Nikki Nellis with Me and the Beast. We'll be back in just a sec. All right. We're back on Fooding the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. Before we get back to the show again, I want to thank our sponsors, ProFish, the finest sustainable fish anywhere, period. Not gefilte fish, because you can't fish for gefilte fish, right? Okay. Market at River Falls, which has everything you want for Easter dinner, for Passover, you name it, they've got it. And our friends at Meat Crafters, Skinny Salamis, uh, and Central Farm Markets, great sponsors for a great show. Let's be honest. Come on, everybody nod your head out there in the audience. All right, so let's get back to where we're, oh, we want to talk about, we have actual manna here. I don't know if it dropped from the heavens. Did it? Is it possible? Ellen? In the day. In the day? Appropriate for Passover. Um, the story goes. We're going to taste it and see what it. it what when, you can see it. Um, the Jews were fleeing. Um, they were hungry, and and God tested them and their strength to survive. Do you think that's where our, our cultural hunger comes from? Because everything's so, God testing us. Yeah, no, no. Yes. About just God being tests hungry. us every day. Just being hungry. <laughs> no, no, no. Why we always want to bring food with us? Because we right. never know when we're going to be without. Right. Well, that is a very. Um, it's a very true sort of. Um, anyway, there's a whole other story about that and why we haven't caught up to our instincts of. Hoarding food. I always because, bring food on the road. What if I get lost? Right, right. <laughs> I may um, need to eat. Carsha. So this this <laughs> fell <laughs> dashboard dining. <laughs> this fell from the heaven. Um, some say that it could have been the bees in a dust storm, and it swirled. I up mean, it tastes like honey. Tastes it does. Yeah, it tastes like honey. So this is actual. This is actual um, manna, which is from a province in the Middle East um, that was brought in for us by a spice trader, uh, Baruch. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Baruch. Um, it is. I'll say insect larva. That doesn't sound yeah, very it's tasty, it's, it's, but it's, actually, it's a, a crystallized honey. It I like looking at Susan because I know she does. But wait, it tastes and honey. looks like bee pollen. Right. Like crystallized right. bee it pollen. It tastes and looks like it's a, raisin bran, actually. It's more <laughs> the ancient version of that. And there is a, a small village that is still cultivating this. Cultivating manna. it. Fascinating. And there's a so few chefs that it? use it. Well, it's you know it's almost like you know we you don't do you so don't use for, it too much because you can't get it that yeah, often. There's, so there's we sort of right. hoard this of bag in, uh, here in the United States, but we're fortunate enough to get some. But it's more of a finishing type of it's like a sweet finishing crystal, mm-hmm. like you would use finishing salt. It's you know, d- d- sprinkling it on desserts. Actually, t- one okay. of the great flavors I think okay, we've found. Oh, it, I guess you I'll make, try it. You make cardamom ice cream. Mm. And you sprinkle manna on the top and then drizzle it with espresso. It's like a, it's oh my like God, a Middle Eastern like avocado. Start a it's man- outrageous. Right. A manna farm. But it's a little <laughs> – that crunch crystal is that sweet crystal in the finish. That's what we use it for. Okay. Um, so when we were off air, we were talking about so many different things. Brandy, when you're doing the desserts for this concept – I mean, since people are in the museum, they're not looking for a long sit down. What are the kinds of things that you're producing there that people can get, you know, something sweet to finish? Um, I think exactly what Todd said really is that, you know, constantly have to recreate and and change things according to, to what people like. Because initially we went into this trying to stay true to, you know, to let's do Israeli desserts. Let's do, you know, hamantashen and things like that. But, 
you know, I kind of learned over time that people are going to buy what they know. And while mm-hmm. you have some people that are here that, you know, they're interested in trying things that they never have, the majority of people, they, they look for something that they can relate to. So, you know, like the the Sufganiyo we have there, we have on the menu, we fry them fresh every day for, for the restaurant in Mana. Um, Do you just put in quotes donut. like fried donuts? No, <laughs> we haven't done we, that We yet. actually <laughs> have not, but, um, but people, people are getting it. Yeah, they, I mean, they look, they can at least identify, you know, that's a donut. Um, right. But you do have a lot of people asking, so, and I'm always happy to explain it to them because, you know, myself, I... I love to learn about new things. and But there's definitely um, a, a portion of, of people who – there's a large portion that does like to see familiar foods. But sure. there's definitely – you know, we get stopped every day walking through the restaurant or wherever we're on our way to. And people will pull us aside and say, I've never had anything like this before. This is amazing. And they're experiencing something new. And they're a little more adventurous and they are trying something new, like tahini and grits together. I mean, that's a sort well, that's of a little such a Virginia, thing. A Virginia yeah. meets Israel yeah. kind of thing, or the <laughs> Middle right. East kind of thing. Right. But we we definitely <laughs> turning some palettes around a little bit too. I think in so we're always striking a balance between keeping people happy who just want to stay with the chicken so fried basket. So how do you? But how are you educating? So. Is there, when you look at that menu, do you have like little blurbs on everything? We had to put pictures. Okay. In the beginning, it was a written menu. And then I realized that, well, it took longer to get through the line because people just didn't understand. And, you know, we're so used to working with it. We we didn't even think for a minute that people wouldn't understand what a falafel was. But we have people coming from all over the place that just they don't know what a falafel is. And I'm so grateful that we have the opportunity to introduce them to one. But they really needed to understand it better. So... We um, took pictures of all the dishes and put it on a big poster and then put it on the menu. And things move a lot more smoothly now because everybody can see what the dish looks like before they get it. So that's made things a lot easier. I'm, I'm, wait, well, I want to get Susan back over to the microphone. And I'm sorry to hear you feel awful. <laughs> oh, my God. No, no, no. That is Susan, all he's wanted to say no, throughout no, the entire no, I, show. That is the truth because I could have said it anytime I wanted. Okay. So, Susan. You're an archaeologist, and you've mm-hmm. studied all this. Is there anything that sort of blew your mind when you found out that 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 ancient people ate such and such? Like, where did they get it? How did they do it? Um, I mean, we were talking about the za'atar earlier. Like that, we do date back to the Roman period, so that's really cool. That that's something that has been eaten for over two thousand years, and it's just kind of continued on. Um, the Romans ate a lot of. Weird stuff we would not eat today. Um, <laughs> well, they were big offal eaters, right? Didn't they no eat like they ate, oh, like <laughs> oh, hard guts. kidney yes. guts? They ate like yeah. they ate organs, udders, bladders, tongues, ears, awful. eyes. They were, <laughs> they were utilizing. They were real utilizers of nose to tail. They were real snap to tail. They were real snap to tail. More noses, please. They didn't waste anything. Yeah, no, they ate everything. They also. The other thing I thought was interesting that I had never, I didn't know before was um, today we like kind of honesty in food um, and things to be what they are. The Romans thought it was hilarious if you could trick someone into eating something. (laughs) So there's this story of um, a cook feeding someone anchovies, but they were actually, um, I forget what it was, like uh, not parsnip, but like... um, Vegetable, like a vegetable that they disguise as an anchovy. Well, it's Trump Loy. Trump Loy. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's but what the Michelle person, Richard was yeah. famous for. You know, we would serve you something and it would look like a hard-boiled egg, but it was really mozzarella and tomato. Yeah, yeah. 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 you know. Right. Right. Yeah, so they, so they thought it was hilarious when you were able to successfully pull that off for somebody. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I mean, we're talking about dining. 
2,000 years ago. And I think we all, well, not everybody, I can't speak for everybody here, but you believe that like primitive culture just didn't have the savvy to either die in that way or or have the access. And yet some people, the wealthy people, mm-hmm. did, which I, it's just fascinating Yeah, what was available. Yeah, the cookbook that we've been talking about around the Roman table is based off a cookbook that survived from the 4th century AD that's based or comes from a cook or a man named Apicius who lived during the 1st century. And there's kind of a legend around him that he was a huge foodie to the point that later in his life he realized he was running out of money and he wouldn't be able to maintain his lavish food lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And he killed himself. Wow. <laughs> wow. That is the no I recognize her, but no. No, <laughs> no Michelin stars at all. No, no Michelin no. stars at all. Yeah. And I don't know I'm if that's true or not, that. but I, I mean, story. after he did devotion. eventually die from whatever cause, his name became synonymous with, or synonymous with a chef, like a head chef. That's um, amazing. Yeah. That's a, Brandy, I have a quick story. question. You said sure. this cake that you made has no flour in it? No. It's so all, it's is this a friendly. Passover friendly? This is a Passover friendly. Yes. Are you guys going to make matzah? This will be on the Are you making matzah? No, no, we're no, buying we're... matzah from Brooklyn. Thank okay. you. Okay. <laughs> Nobody makes matzah just gotta down be here. Nobody right. makes matzah down here. But this cake, however, will be on the uh, menu this week. We just decided that. Yeah, it's almond flour, round pine nuts. I mean, that's it. I've got a little bit of hazelnuts in there. We've got to wrap it up. I got to jump in. The the show is almost (laughs) over. We've got about a half a minute. Todd and Ellen, tell everybody where Mana is and what the hours are and all the basic stuff. We're at um, the mu- inside the Museum of the Bible at 400 D Street Southwest. Why does she get so quiet when we're she on the sixth floor? floor. No, she's very proper. I don't want to be too right. loud. Too loud. Right. <laughs> um, we're on the sixth floor. And um, okay, can we talk quickly? You're going to be doing brunch. Brunch is rolling out in April. Can we talk about it? You got it. Thirty yeah. seconds. Yeah. Hip hop, uh, gospel, gospel hip hop brunch at the museum. DJ the second, Saturday, second second Sunday of, of the month, yeah, each month, and uh, sort of a little Mediterranean Southern, a lot of fun DJs happening. Excellent, and you're going to be doing culinary dinners as well, Col- educational yes. culinary dinners, yes. right? It'll Featuring be like Susan. dinner and a movie, but with Susan. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, we can't wait for you guys dinner to dinner to tell us more about it. We thank you both so much, all of you, you, for coming in today. This was so interesting. And uh, as we gear up for both Passover and Easter, there are tons of fabulous recipes that you can look at in Todd and Ellen's book, Tessa. Pull in tight on that, please, um, for both your Passover or Easter table. But, of course, you can go to the Museum of the Bible and check out what Tan and Ellen are doing there at MANA. We want to thank you all for joining us today. And everybody, please have a delicious week.